Hello, welcome back to another lecture in contract law. In this lecture, we're going to continue the discussion of the incorporation problem when it comes to the incorporation of terms into a formed contract. And I want to focus on a question that tends to attract a lot of interest in practice. And that question is, how can you actually ensure that a term is incorporated into a contract? I always start this sequence of lectures with a quote from Ewan McKendrick's book on contract law, where he observes the following, that many businesses spend significant sums of money on legal advice in relation to drafting their standard terms of business, but then adopt a surprisingly lax approach when it comes to ensuring that these standard terms are incorporated into the contracts that they conclude. And McKendrick's go-to example of this problem in practice, then, is a case called Poseidon Freight Forwarding Company versus Davies Turner Southern Limited, which is a 1996 English case. The facts are, I guess, a little antiquated nowadays, as are many of the facts of many contract law cases, because it has to do with a contract concluded by the exchange of documents via fax machine. I don't know how many of you listening to this nowadays are familiar with what fax machines were and how they operated. But the key detail in this particular case is that the standard terms were on a document which was double-sided, and in order to fax a document properly, in order to get both sides sent through via fax, you have to scan both sides of the document. And what happened here is that the business failed to scan the opposite side of the document, stating all their standard terms of business. And as a result, even though they had reduced the contract to writing, the terms that were on the reverse side of the sheet were not incorporated into the contract. So I think we'd have to agree with McKendrick that that is a pretty good example of a lax approach to the incorporation of terms into a contract. And so it is worth trying to answer this question of how can you actually try to guarantee that a term is incorporated into a contract. And there is a basic rule that seems to apply here which we can state in the following way, which is that in order to ensure that a term gets incorporated into a contract, one of three methods can be adopted. You can get the other party to sign a document stating that term. You can put the other party on notice as to the existence of that term, bring their attention to the term. Or you can rely upon a course of dealing or a custom in a given trade to incorporate a term. And broadly speaking, those methods are stated in the order of, of strength. In other words, the strongest method of incorporating a term into a contract is to state it on a written document that another party signs. The second strongest method is to bring the other party's attention to the existence of the term, even if it's not written down in a document that they sign. And the least strong method is to rely upon a course of dealing or a custom. Now we're going to go through each of these methods in some detail, looking at a range of cases. And you know, it's always worth paying attention to what I'm saying in these lectures, but it's particularly worth paying attention to this topic because it is both practically important and also a typical source of inspiration for problem questions on contract law exams because it's quite finicky and tricky. And even though I've stated the basic rule of incorporation here fairly straightforwardly, the reality is much more complex and there's lots of exceptions and qualifications to add to those three methods of incorporation. So in this particular lecture, we'll try and cover the first two methods. And then in the next lecture, we'll cover the last method and have a bit of a summary and 
wrapping up on the incorporation of express terms into a contract. We'll move on then in the subsequent set of lectures to implied terms of contract. Now, before we begin in earnest, I just want to throw a little bit of a spanner in the works, so to speak, by suggesting the following, which is that although I'm saying that there are these three standard methods of incorporation, and these are the methods that you'll see discussed in most of the textbooks on contract law, there is something of a hint that more recently courts have adopted a more flexible approach to the incorporation of contracts. And in a sense, we can't say for definite or for sure whether any of these three methods actually work, because a lot of it will depend on the facts of any particular case. And one of the alleged illustrations of this in Ireland is a recent case called the James Elliott versus Irish Asphalt case, which Robert Clark in particular has suggested provides evidence of Irish courts taking this more flexible approach to incorporation. Now, I highly recommend that you actually read the text of the James Elliott versus Irish Asphalt case, and I've put it up on Blackboard for you, because it is a good review of the current legal position in relation to a corporation. But I'll mention it myself anyway at the end of the second of these two lectures on the incorporation rule or the, the three methods of incorporation. So without any further ado, let's start talking about the first of those three methods of incorporation, incorporation by signature. And as I said already, the basic idea here is that if you want to incorporate a term, have it set down in a written document and get another party to sign that document. And the idea then is that through the signature, they are recognizing the existence of that term and accepting it as part of the deal that they have concluded with you. One of the cases that's commonly cited to illustrate this approach or this rule is the case of Lestrange or Lestrange versus F. Graukob. This is a 1934 English case, and the facts of it are that the plaintiff, Lestrange, owned a cafe in Clandudno in Wales, and she was approached by two representatives of a cigarette vending machine company, and they were trying to get her to purchase a cigarette vending machine for her cafe. So she agreed to do so, and she signed a sales agreement, and the sales agreement did a couple of things. One is that it set down that there were going to be staged payments for this vending machine. And then it also included the following clause. If any payment shall not have been received by the defendants within a fortnight after it has become due, all the remaining payments shall fall due for immediate payment. And I, Lestrange, agree to pay interest on these remaining payments at the rate of 10% per annum. So as you can see, this is quite a punitive clause for any late payments, in essence. So if she fails to make one of her stage repayments, she suddenly becomes liable for all the subsequent payments and will also pay interest on them. Another clause in this written document also stated that this agreement contains all the terms and conditions under which I agree to purchase the machine stated above and any express or implied condition, statement or warranty, statutory or otherwise, not stated herein is hereby excluded. So that second clause is important because it seems to exclude statutory rights that she might have had under various statutes pertaining to the sale and supply of goods. So like what happened was that the machine was delivered, it turned out to be faulty, and so the plaintiff tried to sue the defendants for damages. And one of the grounds upon which she sued was that the machine was not fit for purpose. And fitness for purpose is a concept under the Sale of Goods Act, which we'll be talking about in a couple of weeks' time in more detail, but you might be familiar with that anyway. So the defendants replied that 
fitness for purpose was not a term of the contract because the exclusion clause within the written document stated that all statutory rights would be excluded. The plaintiff then also tried to argue that there was misrepresentation as she thought the agreement was simply an order form and not a document with contractual effect. But the Court of Appeal in England held that there was no misrepresentation here and that she could not sue on the basis that the machine was not fit for purpose. She was going to be bound by the terms and conditions that were stated in the document that she had signed. Those were the terms that were incorporated into the contract and they excluded liability on the grounds that she claimed. Now look, nowadays this particular decision is generally viewed as being quite harsh. And there is, of course, a fitness for purpose clause, which is an implied term of a contract for the sale of goods under the Sale of Goods and Supply of Services Act of 1980 in Ireland. But, I mean, whether that applies to this particular deal, which you could argue is concluded between two business partners, is something that we'll come back to when we discuss implied statutory terms of contract. Now, despite the general claim or view, which still holds true to this day pretty much, with some qualifications that we'll get to later on, there are three exceptions to the idea that if you sign a document, the terms stated in that document will necessarily be incorporated into the contract. And the three exceptions are as follows. First, there is the so-called non-est factum exception. And this holds that if you are unable, through no fault of your own, to understand what is written down in the document, then you are not bound by it. Uh, for those of you who are interested, the Latin here translates roughly as it was not the deed or was not the person's deed. So the idea is that even though they signed the document stating this term, they didn't actually really agree to it because they didn't understand it. Now, it's actually hard enough to find examples of the non-as factum rule applying in practice because, as you will have heard there, one of the key features of it is that it must be through no fault of your own that you can't understand the document. One of the famous cases on it is a case called Saunders versus Anglia Building Society, an English case. Uh, sometimes you'll see this referred to as the case of Galley v. Lee in certain textbooks and articles. That's because those were the names of the parties under an earlier variation of the case. So here we have a party, Mrs. Galley, who signs a document presented to her by Mr. Lee, who is a business associate of her nephew. Now, the business associate claims that the document merely confirmed the gift of her house to her nephew, but in fact it stated that he, the business associate, Mr. Lee, had the power to grant the building society a mortgage over the property granted to her nephew. Now, she tried to back out of this by claiming non-est factum, on the grounds that she had been unable to read the document provided to her because she had broken her reading glasses. But interestingly, the Court of Appeal, and in this case including Lord Denning, who would ordinarily be sympathetic to this kind of defendant, and the English House of Lords, had no sympathy for her plight. They held that in order to appeal or apply the doctrine of non as factum, the lack of understanding must be caused by some kind of defective education, illness, or innate capacity. And the mere fact that she couldn't locate adequate reading glasses isn't sufficient to claim this. I guess the argument here, the reasoning here, is that she could have easily corrected the problem, she could have asked the person to come back and sign the document another day when she fixed her glasses, whereas correcting some kind of defect in education or underlying illness or innate capacity is, is different. And also, maybe you could argue that the fact that her glasses were broken was her own fault in some sense. 
So non-S factum is probably pretty rare in practice because the set of circumstances in which you can successfully plead it are fairly limited. The second way of getting out of this incorporation by signature idea is if there is some kind of misrepresentation regarding the terms within the document. And again, there's one kind of standard famous case that supposedly illustrates this. It's a case called Curtis v. Chemical Cleaning and Dyeing Company, 1951 uh, English decision. And just as an aside, I, this always strikes me as a somewhat bizarre case by modern standards. And one of the things that's really happened to our courts nowadays is that the only people who get to the higher echelons of the appeal system, particularly for commercial or contractual disputes, are those who can afford it. And it's pretty rare to get contracts for seemingly minor everyday things to be disputed in, let's say, the High Court or the Supreme Court. But for some, whatever reason, Curtis versus Chemical Cleaning and Dyeing Company, even though it seems to involve a fairly small-scale commercial transaction, or actually consumer transaction, managed to end up with a decision in the second highest court in England. So what are the facts of the case? So what we have here is Miss Curtis, who takes a white satin wedding dress to the defendants for cleaning. When she did so, she was presented with a document containing a clause that excluded the cleaning company from liability for any damage caused to the dress. So a classic exclusion clause or exemption of liability clause within a contract. She asked them why did she have to sign this document, and she was told that it was simply because the company did not accept liability for any damage to beads or sequins on the dress, so not a general exclusion of liability clause, but rather a specific exclusion of liability clause. Now, she didn't read the document, but she signed it anyway, and when the dress was returned to her, there was a stain on it, and she brought a claim against the defendants, who in turn attempted to rely upon the exclusion clause in the written document. And here the Court of Appeal held that they could not rely upon this exclusion clause because the representative of the company had misrepresented its true contents to Mrs. Curtis at the point when she signed it. So the important idea here is that you have a statement or misrepresentation that contradicts what is actually contained in the written document. The third way then of avoiding the incorporation by signature rule is if the document that is being signed is not one that can be properly construed of being of contractual effect. So it can't be just like a mere administrative document. And now like what counts as a document of contractual effect is a little bit tricky in practice. You know, invoices sometimes count as documents of contractual effect, but delivery dockets don't count as being of contractual effect, and receipts maybe sometimes count as being of contractual effect, but then other times they don't. So a lot of this kind of turns on the particular facts of the case and what a party can reasonably expect a document to mean or that what a party can reasonably expect the contractual significance of a document to be. Nevertheless, look, there are some cases that illustrate the idea. So Here's one example, Grogan versus Robin Meredith plant hire. Here we have a timesheet that is signed by a customer, which includes some standard terms of business, but the court held that that couldn't count for the purposes of incorporation of terms by signature because it's just a record of contractual performance. And no one would ordinarily think that a timesheet would count as a a document of contractual significance. There's also then the case of James Elliott versus Irish Asphalt, which I'll discuss in more detail later on. 
But in that case, one of the things that happens is that the courts decide that a delivery docket can't count as a, as a document of contractual effect. Now, this idea in this third exception to the rule of incorporation that you have to think about what a reasonable party would believe the document to be, or a party would believe its significance to be, that kind of teeters over into the next incorporation rule, which is the incorporation by notice rule. So the basic idea here, as already stated, is that you can incorporate a term into a contract, even if you're not getting a party to sign a document stating that term, by just drawing it to the attention of the other party. Now, there are three specific requirements associated with this. There's three things that have to happen in order for incorporation by notice to succeed. First of all, the other party's attention must be brought to the existence of the term prior to the moment in time when the contract was formed or created. So to fully appreciate this in practice, you kind of have to go back to the rules and offer an acceptance and about how we time the formation of a contract. It has, it's after it's accepted and acceptance is communicated to the other party. So bear that in mind at all times as I discuss the following cases that illustrate this idea. So probably the most famous case that illustrates this idea is the case of Ollie versus Marlborough Court Hotel. Again, an English case. Here we have a married couple, the Ollies, who booked a room in the Marlborough Court Hotel. While they were out for dinner, their key was taken from the hotel reception and their room was broken into, and Mrs. Ollie's fur coat was stolen. And then she claimed damages from the hotel. Now, the hotel tried to disclaim liability on the grounds that there was a notice on the wall of the Ollie's hotel room that stated the following, the proprietors will not hold themselves liable for articles lost or stolen unless handed to the manageress for safety, for, for safe custody. So they're claiming that she should have read this notice and she should have handed her fur coat over to the manageress of the hotel. But the problem here was that the court said that this notice on the wall of their hotel room came too late in time. It brought the Ollie's attention to the existence of this term after the formation of contract. The contract was effectively formed and completed at check-in at the hotel and not when they entered the room. Now, the Ollie case actually illustrates a general principle or idea that you might be interested in, or sorry, is an example of a phenomenon that you might be interested in, which is to do with notices that disclaim liability for things. And probably one of the most common examples of this in practice is notices disclaiming liability in car parks, you know, that uh, the owners park their vehicles here at their own risk, and that the owners of the car park exclude liability or disclaim liability for anything that happens to the vehicles themselves. So if you have paid parking, you're forming a contract with the car park owner, and you might wonder, are these notices of any contractual effect? Are they incorporated into the contract that you have with the car park? And again, there's another very famous case. There's a particular reason why this is famous as well amongst technology lawyers, because it's the first example of, in a sense, a, a contract concluded with a computer device or an electronic device called Thornton versus Shoe Lane Parking. It's a 1971 case. It's kind of a famous, actually, Lord Denning decision. And the facts are that Thornton was using a multi-story car park. There was a general vehicles parked at owner's risk sign at the entrance before he entered into the car park. So that's fine. That's standard. And that comes before the contract is formed. He then enters the multi-story car park. He pressed a button on the you know, barrier vending machine going into the car park, which some of you will be 
very familiar with this idea. He then received a ticket for the car park. On the back of the ticket for the car park, it was stated that there were terms of the contract formed with the car park uh, to be found on notices posted inside the car park. And one of the terms on these notices stated that the car park disclaimed liability for damage to property and also, crucially, for any personal injuries acquired while on the premises. Now, Thornton was injured on the premises and he tried to sue for damages, and the car park tried to make use of the exclusion clause stated on these notices on the walls of the car park. But the Court of Appeal rejected this and found in favor of Thornton because they held that the defendants had not brought the term to the attention of Thornton prior to the formation of the contract, and they concluded that the contract was formed at the moment that he took the ticket from the machine. And as I say, this is actually a crucial authority for modern technology, electronic commerce law, because it shows that you can actually form a contract, accept and complete a contract with a machine, with an electronic device, if a company holds out this electronic device as being capable of accepting your offer. So that's a key idea for all kind of internet-based transactions nowadays. So there's a quote from Lord Denning in this case that I want to just mention. He says the following. He says, The customer pays his money and gets a ticket, and he cannot refuse it. He cannot get his money back. He may protest to the machine. He may even swear at it, but it will remain unmoved. He is committed beyond recall. He was committed at the very moment when he put his money into the machine, and the contract was concluded at that time. Now, this quote suggests to us that the multi-story car park in Thornton versus Shoe Lane Parking operated in a different way to many modern um, multi-story car parks, which is that you usually don't pay at the point of entry. You usually pay later. You, you get a ticket first, and then you spend some time in the car park, and then later you come back and you're charged a certain price depending on how long you've stayed there. So you might wonder how does the Thornton authority apply to kind of modern car parks. And so what I would say is that the reality is that the contract is still probably completed or formed at the moment in time when you receive the ticket to enter into the car park because that's the moment in time that you enter into a binding commitment to pay depending on how long you've spent within the car park. Uh, the only exception I can imagine to this would be where the car park might allow you some kind of grace period. So some car parks allow you like 15 minutes to enter, look around for a space, and if you don't get one, you can exit for free. But after the uh, elapsing of that 15 minutes, the contract is probably finalized. So Thornton is probably still applies to those kinds of modern scenarios or modern car parks. Now, the second idea then when it comes to incorporation by notice, we've had that first idea that you have to draw attention to the term prior to the formation of the contract. The second key idea is that the term must be stated on some kind of document that can have contractual effect. So this follows up on the previous idea, the previous rule on incorporation by signature. And it can't just be a receipt in particular. It can't just be something that is a record of a transaction. Now, again, this is actually tricky because we'll see a bunch of cases later where receipts are sometimes taken to have the potential to have contractual effect depending on the nature of the transaction concluded between the parties. Nevertheless, there's a, a famous case that's supposed to illustrate this second idea, a case called Chapleton v. Barry. And here we have uh, the plaintiff, Chapleton, who hires two deck chairs at a council beach in the UK. And 
In return, he receives two tickets. And on these tickets, it states that the council is not liable for any accident or damage that arises from the hiring of the deck chair. Now, the claimant assumed that the ticket was just a receipt, and he never bothered to read the back of it. The chair collapsed. He was injured. He then sued the council, and they tried to argue that they were excluded from liability because of the terms stated on the ticket. But the court held that they couldn't do so because this exclusion of liability clause had not been brought to the attention of the claimant on a document that could be presumed by him to have contractual effect. It wasn't reasonable for him to assume that the ticket contained contractual terms. That then brings us to the third key requirement for incorporation by notice, which is probably the most important in practice and the one that creates the most difficulty for courts, which is that reasonable steps have to be taken to bring the term to the attention of the other party. So look, I mean, the idea here is that if the other party actually knows of the existence of the term and doesn't deny that they were aware of the term or that their attention was brought to it, then in practice it's probably not going to be a big issue for this incorporation by notice rule. It's only if they were, their attention was brought to it after the contract was formed that a problem arises. The more typical problem that arises in practice is that a party will state that they brought the other party's attention to the existence of this exclusion clause or this term that they wanted to incorporate into the contract, and the other party will deny knowledge of it and say, well, no, I, I wasn't aware that this was going to be a, a term of dealing between us. So that's when courts focus on this third idea, which is that reasonable steps must have been taken to bring the term to the attention of the other parties. So what this means in practice is that even if the other party wasn't aware of the existence of the term, they may be bound by it if reasonable steps have been taken to bring their attention to it. So I'm going to divide my discussion of this third idea up into two parts. I'm going to discuss some old cases, mainly dealing with actually railway tickets, that are commonly introduced here to familiarize students with this idea of reasonable notice. And those old cases, while somewhat useful, can be a little bit confusing. So then I'm going to discuss some more recent authorities, which I think are a little bit clearer when it comes to the steps that must be taken in order to reasonably attempt to bring a party's notice or attention to a term. And you may wonder, well, why don't I just discuss the more recent cases? And the reason for that is that the old ticket cases are still routinely cited and discussed in, again, textbooks and also sometimes in courts. So it's worth being aware of them because you'll see them cropping up in citations quite frequently. Okay, so when it comes to these railway cases, the thing to bear in mind here is that tickets on for trains and actually many tickets for transport routinely set out conditions of carriage or conditions of business, or they might actually just refer to the existence of such conditions. So if you get a, a railway ticket from Erin Road Erin or whoever, it'll typically state that you you know your carriage is via the standard terms of the transport provider. In the Irish case, Irnod Aaron, um, but the ticket itself won't state those terms. So you have to look them up online to find them. Sometimes they're stated on notices at ticket purchasing machines and in ticket purchase counters and stuff, or your attention will be directed to the existence of a web page where those terms exist. And that's been a standard feature of the way in which Railways have done business for many years. Obviously, now, you know, historically, they didn't have web pages where they would state out their 
terms and conditions, but they would have had public notices in railway stations stating their terms of business. So the question that arises in practice is, are our customers on notice as to those conditions? Have they, has their attention been adequately brought to the existence of those conditions of carriage by having those notices in public areas within railway stations or by referring to the existence of them on tickets? Well, look, there's a whole sequence of cases on this. So the, the first case in this sequence is a case called Parker versus Southeastern Railway. It's an 1877 English case. So here you have Mr. Parker, who wants to leave his bag at a cloakroom in a railway station, Charing Cross Station in London, which is run by the defendants. So when he hands over his bag, he's presented with a ticket, and the ticket states that the railway company would not be liable for the theft of items greater than £10 in value. Now, Parker saw the ticket when he handed over his bag. He realized that it contained writing, but he assumed it was just a receipt, a little bit like the Chapleton versus Barry UDC case. So he never actually bothered to read the exclusion clause that was stated on the back of the ticket. And his bag was stolen, obviously enough, and it contained items greater than £10 in value. And the question was whether he was on notice as to the existence of the, the term. Now at trial, and there used to be jury trials in these kinds of cases back in the 1800s, a jury found in his favour on the grounds that would, it was reasonable for him not to have read the ticket and to assume that it didn't have any real contractual effect. Eventually, this court case wound its way up to the Court of Appeal in England, and the Court of Appeal here didn't reach a definitive conclusion on the facts of this particular case. They held that there should be a retrial. Nevertheless, the majority of the Court of Appeal did try to clarify what the legal rule ought to be in a case like this, and they held that where notice has been given, but the other party is unaware that it has been given, the term will not be incorporated, but if the other party is aware that the writing might contain conditions, then they may be incorporated, even though they didn't know the precise content. So that's not particularly helpful. And all it really tells us is that in order for a term to be incorporated into a contract when another party is unaware of its existence, you need to ask the question of how have reasonable steps been taken to bring their attention to the existence of the term, and what is it reasonable for that party to assume? So subsequent cases shed a little bit more light on what reasonable steps might count as in practice. So there's a case called Richardson, Spence & Co. versus Roundtree. It's an 1894 case, and this is, involves a passenger on a ferry or a ship who's given a folded ticket, and the folded ticket has no visible writing on it when it was presented to them. When opened up, the ticket was found to contain many conditions of carriage on the ship, including an exclusion clause for any personal injuries or any loss of baggage. But the problem is that the passenger never read these terms and conditions. Now, he was subsequently injured on the ship and tried to sue for damages, and the company tried to rely upon the exclusion clause stated on the ticket. And it was found that the passenger did not know that the conditions were on this ticket, and that by presenting the ticket to him, in this manner, folded over so that the writing wasn't visible, the company had not taken reasonable steps to bring his attention to those terms. So, I mean, I think that is a reasonable decision, and you can understand the logic of it. And what it does illustrate or show quite clearly is how what counts as a reasonable step depends to a large extent of the facts of the particular case. So, yeah, folding over a ticket and hiding the terms, that's not reasonable. 
Let's move on then to discuss some Irish cases involving similar kinds of facts. So there's a case called Ryan versus Great Southern and Western Railway Company of 1898 decision. And here we have uh, the plaintiff who purchased a ticket from the defendant company. His bags are lost on the railway trip and he tries to sue for damages. But on the ticket that he received in minute print, it stated that the plaintiff would be bound by the company's standard terms of carriage. And those terms included an exclusion clause for lost baggage. Now, the plaintiff never read the small print on the ticket, but in any event, the actual terms of the carriage were not stated on the ticket, and the plaintiff, it was found in this case, would have had to mount a very special inquiry to find out what the terms were. You know, they weren't easily accessible to him. So the court decided that in these circumstances, when it wasn't easy for the plaintiff to find out what the terms were, they had not been incorporated into the contract. Insufficient steps have been taken to give the plaintiff notice. So, I mean, that decision kind of gives us a, a hint or flavor of what reasonable steps would need to be taken, which is that you have to make the terms of carriage easily accessible. And so public notices in, say, the ticket counter area of a railway station, that would probably suffice if there's a you know clear notice saying these are the terms of carriage. That would probably suffice. But, you know, hiding the terms of carriage away in a back office somewhere where you have to fill out a form to request them, that wouldn't be reasonable. So we have those kinds of two extremes to know what's reasonable and what's not reasonable. Now, there is a bit of a problem here when it comes to the application of this principle or idea in Irish law, and that Irish courts haven't been entirely consistent on their approach in these ticket type of cases. I mentioned some of these odd cases on the slides or notes that accompany this lecture in a bit more detail. I won't really go into them now, but there's one case I'll just mention as illustrating this. There's a case called Shea versus the Great Southern Railway Company. It's a 1944 Irish decision. And in that case, you had an exclusion of liability clause that was referenced in a ticket, but it was on a notice in a railway station that was obscured by a door. But even in those circumstances, the court found that the defendant company was entitled to rely upon the clause, even though it was obscured by a door. And I know that Robert Clark, when he discusses this case, suggests that that wasn't a reasonable decision, but maybe it was, depending on how easy it would have been to unobscure the notice by you know, closing the door or opening the door, or whatever the case may be. Okay, now, so now that we've concluded that sequence of ticket cases, I'm going to finish this particular lecture and we'll take up the next lecture looking at the more modern decisions on incorporation by notice.